Welcome to the Zealous Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Snyder. And this week, I have Jill Miller as my guest. She's the author of a few books, like The Role Model and her more recent one, Body for Breath. She owns Tune Up Fitness with her husband, and she is really all about fascia, all about myofascial release. She's done workshops and continues to do them with Thomas Miller, with Anatomy Trains, and a whole bunch more. So we're going to jump right in. But before that, let's just remind you that this December 9th in Arizona, the State Clinic for the NSCA is occurring. I'll be presenting on functional anatomy and how to apply that to rehab strength conditioning, as well as at the end of January on the 27th and 25th, I will be offering a two-day workshop where we dive into biomechanics in a closed-chain environment, utilizing wedges, how to assess static and dynamic postures, and the strategies you want to have based on those findings. All right, on to the show. Jill, it has been way too long since we have been either face-to-face or talking, and I can't believe COVID has a way of just pushing things uh, asunder and pushing things apart, so it's really great to have you reconnect here and for the listening audience Jill is well let's why don't you just give us a background of yourself and and the books you've written the projects you're doing and all that thanks Rocky yeah I remember having some correspondence with you during the pandemic and here and there but it's been a while it's definitely been a while so I am the founder or co-founder of Tuna Fitness Worldwide it's a company that I run with my husband um, and uh, as as a business owner of this company, underneath the umbrella of Tuna Fitness, I've developed a number of different programs, one of which my first was called Yoga Tune Up, uh, the second one, The Role Model Method, which has a book, and the third, Body by Breath, which uh, has a book that just came out in February. I specialize in educating people about the new science of fascia. I'm very involved in fascia research, and right now I'm working on a second edition of a medical textbook on fascia, a book called Fascia Function and Medical Applications, and I am uh, reworking the self-myofascial release chapter. So the first edition went really well. The editors wanted a second edition, and so we're looking into what the latest science is over the past three years, and that's what I'm preoccupied with now, in addition to teaching uh, full-time, um, traveling world, raising two children, and my rescue mutt, and managing to, you know, have a marriage and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, plenty of time for all that, of course, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm curious, let's just delve right into the world, of, the medical world. Hmm? What what part of the medical world is interested in fascia? You like, oh, who are you, who are you a- addressing? Who's your target audience when we're talking about fascia in the medical world? Well, luckily, the objective of marketing that book is not my problem. Uh, my problem is marketing the books that I've written. I'm just a con- chapter contributor on fascia function and medical applications. So it's up to the editor, David Lazondak, as well as the um, publisher, Taylor and Francis, to to manage that. But to be... To be um, you know, there's really interesting chapters in that book that cover everything from cancer. This is fascia and cancer, fascia and nutrition, fascia and scars, uh, fascia and movement, fascia and sensory, uh, the sensory system, uh, fascia and self-myofascial release. So, so it's very topical. And so the clinicians that would pick, first of all, the clinicians aren't getting this in medical school. So it's just not there. And and that's why when, when we encounter clinicians, um, who've never like didn't know where fascia science is at. It's because it just 
hasn't been included um, in medical school. Maybe if you're a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or a chiropractor, um, osteopath, certainly you will have some of this uh, fascia science, but a general MD is not going to have a lot of special topics or special, um, I guess, special or not, or not know that fascia is of a special interest to them. And I would say to me, the obvious group would be the orthopedic, the, the orthopedists, you know, and that would include everyone from a hand surgeon to trauma care. I mean, so there's so much, I think, to pay attention to regarding the tensional network. And I think the tensional network of fascia has been the most heavily promoted and easily received because it so directly translates into the physical training culture, right? Into fitness culture, into athletic culture. Um, but there are so many other aspects of of fascia that are important for people's health. And I think those are some of the really interesting, uh, th those to me are some of the really interesting topics to to dig into. Um, but so yet, uh, well, I think, I think fascia and sensing is absolutely fascinating because this is where we get to then communicate and cross pollinate with the neuro community. Um, you know, the world of neuroscience has incredible ambassadors, as you know, um, and you know somebody, a figure like uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's been able to absolutely cut through the noise and make brain and brain science very interesting to general population. But when we we one of the one of the quotes from A.T. Still, the founder of osteopathy. Um, one of the things that he says, and I'm misquoting, but it's something like this, when you start to look at fascia, you de are dealing with the branch offices of the brain. Hmm. And there is some recent research that took a look at what is the sensory neuron load in fascial tissues. Um, and originally there was a calculation that said it was about a hundred million sensory nerve endings were in the fascial tissues, which is a lot. Like that's a lot of nerve endings. Your your eyes have about 120 million and your skin have about 200 million nerve endings. Um, and so that was pretty cool. But then they recalculated it. They took into account another layer of fascial tissues known as the superficial fascia. So this original calculation was just done on the deep fascia. And this uh, new calculation looked at um, more fascia. Just, <laughs> just under the skin surface, that interstitial tissue that would normally just burst when slicing into it that was kind yes. of recently quote unquote discovered in the last say five or ten years is that what you're talking about i think it was recently yeah we can get into that let me talk about the yeah i'll so yeah so in essence this membrane layer that lies in between two layers of of fatty tissue so underneath your skin you have you have a thick layer of fatty tissue um, and then you have this superficial fascia membrane and then you have yet another deep adipose layer so you have a superficial adipose layer you have a deep adipose layer and in between those fatty layers are these this incredible membranous envelope and and it's variable throughout your body it's not continuous but sometimes it, it's interrupted um or it tapers off but for the most part we have this all over our body. So they recalculated and they found 250 million sensory nerve endings live in your fascial tissues, which, um, which makes our fascia our greatest sense organ. And so um, as a person who specializes in self-myofascial release, this is really critical because um, this explains so much of people's pain pressure threshold um, and their tolerance for self-myofascial release for different tools 
um, for different applications. And so this is really able to extend my conversation um, in a lot of different directions. I would love it if you could kind of break through some, some noise, as you say, to the benefits of myofascial release. Before we get into other things that we're just about to dive into, there's so many claims out there, some research-backed and justified, others, I think they're just marketing gimmicks, gimmicks mm -hmm. that this is going to do that. What are your primary reasons for doing self-myofascial release? Oh, well, there's so many. Um, let me, I, I could pull up a slide here. It'd probably be easy. So many will roll off my tongue, but if I pull up one of my, um, oh, look at that. I happen to have it right here because I just taught the role model method training in Salt Lake City um, weekend before last. Um, so these are the, these are the evidence-based benefits of self-myofascial release. I mean, it, it took a long time for us to get evidence in terms yeah. of and but let me explain why palpation research that is touch research is a very new science in the annals of science only 150 years old so studying the influence of touch on the human body amazing right but tool research tool-based research the first known paper came out in 1991 so we're only we're in a 30 year cycle right now of of people testing out variables of using tools on bodies and trying to figure out what it's doing if it's doing anything um are we looking at the right things do we have you know so this is a really this is really interesting to me that the you know it's a relatively new uh research area um but the things that it does is number one it improves movement coordination uh, when you roll, it improves your proprioception. So just using a tool, it does improve that body to brain and brain to body location system. Uh, it also improves joint range of motion. This is widely known um, that rolling will help with your mobility. I is it a permanent thing? No, it's a temporary thing. It's a transient thing. But if you do consistent rolling, you plus the training that you probably need to do if you're very restricted in a joint, if you start to roll and then train your joint appropriately, you're going to be able to what I call remodel yourself really well. Um, rolling also decreases pain. So that's great. It, it decreases a number of different types of pain. It de decreases delayed onset of muscle soreness pain that might creep up after a workout. So rolling ahead of time is known to decrease delayed onset later, but it also decreases pain in the moment. And so it can act as an analgesic, especially if you're, you, you wake up and you feel really crappy, um, you know, your neck hurts, your shoulder hurts, your knee hurts. Rolling um, can starve the nociception starve the pain receptors from being able to signal um, that output of discomfort. And so the rolling has this uh, wonderful, creates a wonderful window for training um, or for just getting on with your day. Uh, rolling also increases torque. That is areas that are rolled, the, the muscle contractions to that area are more forceful um, they're stronger. So this is a way to actually increase your ability to PR or push or move weight um, or move yourself across whatever you're doing in your sport. Um, it also, rolling also reduces arterial stiffness and improves your vascular endothelial, endothelial function. There's a lot of really interesting research um, on the vascular system and that 
that friction of rolling actually releases nitric oxide. So it acts as a vasodilator. And this is just incredible stuff. Um, it also uh, increases physiological relaxation. So we get an increase in our parasympathetic tone with that. And of course, with that, you want to be calculating, you know, like, how relaxed do I want to get before I need to, to perform? But it doesn't seem that the this transient relaxation response really affects performance. But if you need to relax, if you need to get better sleep, if you need um, to deal with you know, the hyperarousal that you're living with, um, long rolling with, coupled with breathing. This is what my book is about. This is what Body by Breath is all about. Long rolling coupled with a few other uh, parasympathetic features can really make a massive difference um, in your uh, whole body's physiological relaxation. It's also helpful for, uh, rolling is helpful for lymphedema, helpful for local tissue inflammation. Um, I see it as very helpful for people who are touch averse, uh, we don't have a lot of research on that yet, but there are a lot of people out there and the pandemic really showed me how many people were living in isolation prior to the pandemic. I mean, uh, the blessing of the pandemic is my screen, my home was able to make its way into homes of people all over the world. And they were able to use self-massage to bring their bodies back to life, to be able to induce movement where movement wasn't before, um, and to just get touch into tissues that maybe had been um, neglected by touch altogether, right? Yeah, I, I recall before the pandemic, you presenting at, at one event, bringing in the breath work into it, mm -hmm. and utilizing the the small inflatable balls that, that you have used for working on the viscera as well. I, mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you bring in breath work into, into myofascial release without giving away all the secrets in your book, of course? Yeah, more, there's more so like many secrets in my book. Um, like there's, <laughs> there's over a hundred exercises um, and ways that teach you to compound. So I'll stop telling you all of the, uh, the evidence base behind self modifying There's more, but we can stop oh. there. Okay. Well, that was a truckload. That was fantastic. I'm telling you, like there, there are, and there are, there are other mental health benefits and these mental health benefits are starting to emerge. And this is what's really exciting to me because it does take us directly into why I wrote Body by Breath. Body by Breath was written really as a response to, um, uh, originally when I wrote the book, um, when I wrote Role Model, I had done a call to action to my community, you know, do you have a story of how the role model work, how rolling on these therapy balls, these soft, squishy, pliable balls have helped you in your life or with disease or stress management or whatever, or healing? Um, please send us your story. Uh, are you open to it being published? Uh, and every story, you know, I was expecting sort of like, oh, yeah, it helped my elbow to heal, or yeah, I healed my low back pain, or oh, I didn't have to have knee surgery. Every story that people sent to me had stories like that, but it, they also had this unbelievable story of overcoming. They had these unbelievable emotional stories that coupled with their pain journey, coupled with their healing journey. And I really wanted to dig into the why of why these transformations happen. Um, also, what is it doing to our, the way we uh, deal with life stressors uh, if people have a history of trauma, how these tools have become so multi-purpose and 
the fact that they don't have chemical side effects or negative chemical side effects compared to a lot of other medication that you know many people must take um, in order to cope. Uh, all it has are these beneficial side effects. So I just listed you know ten of them. There's there's more to be to be discussed. So I wrote Body by Breath in order to answer that aspect, really the mental health aspect of the work, because you know breathing. Breathing, it doesn't exist just from your nose to lung. It's a body-wide experience, but your mental health doesn't live in your head. It doesn't live in your mind. Mental health is a body-wide expression as well. And if these tools are helping with the body-wide expression of uplifting people from very difficult, you know, suffering events or, or their own life, uh, we need to know more about that. So that's really the impetus to write this book. And, you know, so the, the title is Body by Breath, The Science and Practice of Physical and Emotional Resilience. There's a lot of words to subtitle the book um, because breath is not the only tool that's used in the book. Um, there's four tools. There's breath, breathe, roll, move, and non-sleep deep rest, also known as yoga nidra. So a combination of those four tools are the things that um, I use in the book in different combinations uh, to help people to build their resilience um, and build a tolerance for being able to endure parasympathetic states. Well, wait a minute, so repeat that. To endure yeah. parasympathetic states? Yes. Or is it because we don't, um, it's uncomfortable to be in a parasympathetic state or we, we choose to be highly sympathetic. I mean, what's, what's that all about? Yes. Um, I think that, I don't think we're necessarily choosing to be highly sympathetic. I think we're dealing with a lot of conditioning, uh, in an aspirational society in a society that says succeed, succeed at all costs, go, go, go champion, champion, strive, strive, strive. And I think that there is definitely a weathering upon bodies that are conditioned in this way to go, go, go. And to not, and, and the, certainly, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, like we didn't have these timeouts where your teachers taught you to breathe or have a mindful moment. I mean, my kids, they're six and nine, seven and nine, their teachers are so equipped to help them learn their emotional inner life in the context of school. Like that was never a part of our conditioning. And I can only, I, I hope that's going to work for them in their lifetime. But I think for a lot of, a lot of I came to that work through the arts, like in the arts, they asked you how you were feeling, express how you're feeling. Um, and so I think that was a, a blessing in my life at a, at a young age. Um, but for the most part, people very much know how to go from zero to 60, but it's much more difficult for them to go from 60 to zero without crashing. And we know this because addiction is um, pervasive in our society. Um, anxiety and depression-related depression diseases um, are at an all-time high and predicted to keep rising. The long-term effects of the pandemic have obviously not helped any, but the number one issue of the National Institutes of Health is the opioid crisis. So people are in pain um, and the, this sort of unfortunate uh, addiction compulsion in our culture, our culture. I mean, the United States is the worst of all the countries. Why? 
I mean, I, I definitely am writing for a worldwide audience, but I live here and I'm saturated in Strive culture. So, yeah. so this is a way to start to build your resilience. And when people hear the word resilience, they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to really learn how to grit and grind. It's like, no, no, no. You're going to learn how to refill your tank because resilience is built out of two things. It's built out of you being able to enlarge your ability to rest and recover. And that fills the tank so that you can perform or outperform what you've ever done before, because you cannot keep going without refilling the tank. Where you're headed is a breakdown, right? If you just go, go, go without refilling, you end up running out of fuel, sputtering out, breaking apart and collapsing. So this is a way to titrate your body, people's bodies, to be able to tolerate the experience of physiological relaxation and stay present with it. A lot of people just, they start to relax. Two things can happen. They'll either pass out. So they'll bypass some of the stages of deep relaxation, not be able to stay present there. Or as they start to relax, this bizarre phenomenon happens for them, which is called relaxation-induced anxiety. Relaxation-induced anxiety. Yeah, I know. Wow. Read my book, everybody. Just read the book. It's all in there. <laughs> um, you're like, if, if you're not watching this, Rocky's brain, you know, that <laughs> definitely is that little like icon. <laughs> what? Relaxation induced anxiety. Yeah. It truly, you know, so here I'm thinking like very primitively, because that's, I'm good at that, uh, a caveman like, but I'm thinking sympathetic response, threat response, just all about survival and just, 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 just always just there, there, there. And we are <laughs> of a, of a, a culture like that. But to be more into the parasympathetic, that's vulnerability, that's exposure, that is rest and hope there is that nothing is going to attack me, which is a very hard place to go for a lot of people. And I could see how relaxed, um, uh, relaxation-induced uh, anxiety could come about because the, the whole primitive brain is going, I don't know about this. I really don't know. Shouldn't we just be making sure there's no saber tooth tigers around? Somebody's got to be on watch. I don't think we should go belly up. So you're saying breath work in concert with some myofascial, self-myofascial release is a way to get in there that uh, allows you to be okay with being there. Yeah. So for some people, like what happens with relaxation and induced anxiety is that the body cannot tolerate stillness. The body cannot tolerate relaxation. And I think this is one of the reasons why meditation um, has such a high failure rate um, and that it's not really easy. It's not really an easy sell. People who are really into it are like, you have got to meditate. You know, you, cause I mean, I don't know if you meditate. <laughs> But those, those folks are like, oh my gosh, meditation has been the key. But for many people, when they start to sit, and by the way, this is not, this is like most people. There's a little bit of research on relaxation-induced anxiety, not as much as I was hoping for, but there was this one paper that said that up to like 63% of people have relaxation-induced anxiety. You know, when they go into stillness, what starts to happen is, of course, the monkey mind happens, duh. Like everybody knows the monkey mind happens, but other things arise like uncontrollable limb movement. And this <laughs> is beyond like, this is beyond like restless leg syndrome. This is like, suddenly you're having these jerks. Your whole body gets shocked. Your, your sympathetic nervous system is like, not on my watch. <laughs> I need to be on guard, just like you said. Yeah. Um, or pain, 
pain will arise. Once stillness sets in, pains known or unknown will arise and it's intolerable. Movement in and of itself, movement is an analgesic to pain. Like when you start to move it, you know, cause pain is a, is a very, very slow moving, uh, moves in very slow conducting nerve fibers. Uh, movement goes in through fast conducting nerve fibers so it can gate out that sense of pain. So um, for those people with relaxation induced anxiety, the trick is to try to work with that anxiety. First, to not shame that anxiety, to know that my anxiety body is welcome here as I'm learning to physiologically relax. And I might have some of these odd symptoms. And that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean that I can't relax. It just means I may need a different approach. And so uh, a slow dynamic movement, um, a, a tolerable breathing threshold. And that's dependence. Like that's a whole other, that's several chapters of the book, but you finding a way that you can tolerate breathing. Um, palpation, the palpation with the tool, with the therapy balls is extremely um, engaging to a brain that needs just a little bit of stimulation in order to not run away from this physiological relaxation. In fact, all the things I'm suggesting are in and of themselves things that create the relaxation response in the body. So this is a way of toggling, of titrating, of manipulating body, attention, breath in ways that finally can help a body to settle into calm at some point, eventually at some point. Right on. Okay. So I don't think this is too much off the wall question because the way in which we're talking right now may not be truly conventional, but we look at hand reflexology, foot reflexology, traditional Chinese medicine, as it relates to the ear, let's say, and there are patterns that emerge. The top of that object, whether it be the fingertips, the toe tips, the tip of your ear is generally up around the top of your head. And as it, you descend down that body part, it descends down your body. And, and typically regarding or relating to organs or organ function. But what if we transpose emotions onto that map? Mm -hmm. Is there an emotional map? I mean, I, I know there's some authors out there that say, well, when you have a hip problem, it means this in your life. When you have a shoulder problem, it means you know, you're taking all the world's problems and, and, and carrying them on your shoulders and so on. But no, I, I really mean like the work that you're doing with self-malfascial release and emotional fitness, shall we say, or wellness, however you'd like to coin it. Have you noticed within the work with your yourself and your clients, if there are areas of the body that pertain more toward one kind of base emotion, or is it just kind of um, a, a cornucopia and dependent upon the individual? Yeah, I'd go with that cornucopia analogy. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm definitely not one to project, oh, you know, the neck is going to be like very much about your this or that. Um, absolutely not. Because you, you just really don't know where you have stories. Like, so I, I like to say the rolling reveals your range of motion and it reveals your range of emotion. Cool. And we have, we're so dialed in, except that we've blocked, we blockaded our ability to have this vulnerable sensing, right? This very uh, safe, way of 
permitting and processing emotions. And I don't mean we, I mean like some people, like not everybody, because- Sure, but just in general, culturally speaking, yeah. Right, and I mean, and for me, there's, I have a couple of ways that I can, uh, that I know are pretty surefire ways for me to be able to connect emotionally to myself. One is through this whole work that I'm talking about. And the, and the other is through singing, through art, art, dancing or singing are the other ways that I have a chance to click in to my own emotional inner life. And so, you know, for some other people, it's, it's sport, engaging in sport or watching sport. Um, but I think each person in their own soma is going to have the, the relics, the fossils of their life story. And those things that we've had to shut down, shut away, punish, store, reserve, um, when they are permitted to finally emerge, it can be incredibly emotional. And it's really important. Like my my husband says, like the, <laughs> the more you keep that wave back, the wave's just gonna really crash in. You're just storing up wave after wave after wave behind that wall. So uh, I do think it's an important emotional fitness element. Um, and this can be done on one's own. This can obviously be done in community within the, a classroom setting, well facilitated by, you know, by a teacher, facilitator, or therapist. And, and I do train uh, educators of every ilk. Uh, the mental health pros that have been drawn to this work are astonishing me with what they're doing in one-on-one practice because they're not licensed to touch, but they can encourage their clients to do self-touch while they're querying them, while they're allowing them to process um, what they've come in for therapy for. So I think there's a lot of potential, you know, use for, again, going back to the, the mental health aspect of fitness that this, that this engages with. Certainly. And you, you, you have been bringing up breath for as long as I remember. I mean, if before, before it became haute couture, you know, before it became really quite popular, you, you were in the forefront with that. And it's not just about the diaphragm. It's not about just the pelvic floor. And like you say, it's a whole body experience. So just guide me into a little bit of how you, how you lead somebody into breathing. Ooh, but I could talk about the diaphragm all day, right? Oh, I know, I know. It is don't my get, favorite don't skeletal get you muscle. Started, right? <laughs> Let's not diminish the diaphragm. It's oh man, no ma'am, no ma'am. I'm such not a cool muscle. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're like, let's talk about everything but the diaphragm. Oh, shall we? Um, so <laughs> one of the things that I do in the book is I break down breathing into the zones of respiration. Um, now, this is a controversial thing to say. I, there's three zones of respiration. You don't have to believe me. But what happens when we do this fake division of these three zones of respiration is it helps us to understand what aspect of our autonomic nervous system is come online. So everything below the diaphragm, and that is, so I'm 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 indicating just below my 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 bra line here, I've got this diaphragm locked up. It, deep within the rib cage, a subdiaphragmatic breath would be happening in what I call zone one. And in zone one, the gut expands, the waist expands, your low back expands, the pelvic floor expands. So there should be an allowance of the pressure of the diaphragm. When, when the inhale cycle happens, your diaphragm, boop, 
it descends and everything below it distends outward. Now you don't have to make this happen. You're not bearing down. You're not trying to have a poop. You're just allowing this reflexive action to happen in these layers. Um, now, a, a, re a restorative recovery-based relaxed breath, this is happening during the nighttime, uh, this type of deep relaxation breath. Now, if a body has scar tissue in their abdomen, um, or if they have um, unconscious tension um, in their abdomen because they want to look thin, um, they've overtoned their abs through abundant you know, core-based exercises or like 10,000 crunches a day type of thing, they might be lacking in a good elastic recoil in those tissues that respond to the diaphragm's pressure. And, and you know that person, you know that person that's pulling their stomach in all the time. They're not really, they're a little bit jittery. They're a little, a little bit amped because they're probably more a zone two breather. And a zone two breather is a, bre is a breath that happens within the rib cage itself. And so at, when the ribs are collaborating with the diaphragm, you'll see this big uh, sort of Popeye swell, the ribs balloon outward, and then they fall down and in. So we have this collaboration of the intercostals along with the diaphragm. And when we're breathing here, our heart rate's going to be higher. Uh, we're going to be a little bit more amplified, a little more energetic. And we need a sympathetic breath. We need a sympathetic breath like this um, when we're doing our um, exercise or fitness-based practices, because you don't want to have your, your abdomen all un, uncontracted, right? If you're going to lift 200 pounds off the ground, you better be bracing around your transversus abdominis and your obliques. So this zone two breath is necessary for heavy lifts, for amplification. Um, but if somebody is living in a zone two breath all the time, chances are they're also defaulting frequently to zone three. And a zone three breath happens in case of emergency. And these breaths are the ones, yes, where you're using muscles, the face, neck, and shoulders to raise your collarbones up and to get a quick draw of air, usually through your mouth, like a gasp reflex, a shock reflex, or sometimes in delight. So a zone three breath isn't always um, diabolical. Uh, sometimes it's about, you know, orgasm can happen in a zone three as well, but if somebody is, um, you know, chronic asthma or pro prone to panic attacks, the zone three is going to, these muscles of zone three are going to be so tonic. And what's that going to do? That's going to create headaches, jaw pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, hand pain, hand pain, wrist pain. Um, and they may have, you know, bouts of asthma. So I was, I was born to an asthmatic. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this work is my mother lives in chronic asthma. Both of my grandmothers died of COPD, emphysema at the time, um, complications due to poor, uh, poor breathing and diseased lungs. Why? Because they were smokers um, and they never had a day of fitness in their life. Um, so uh, this is really the map that I use with my clients and my students to just help them to familiarize themselves, you know, which zone is, which zone is your home? And then we wanna really try to adjust the tensions in zone three, because we, we really don't need them that much. Um, and then build up a collaboration of zone one, zone two, so that we can play our wind instrument as needed for the tasks that are needed. Okay, I completely followed you on that. And I could think of, a person that exemplified each of those zones. So yeah, yeah very interesting. So, so is it just through practice of 
zone one or zone two bringing, uh, breathing to bring that person that is circling around zone three down into the a deeper way of breathing, one that's not so sympathetic? Yeah, but you have to address the 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 tension tone. You have to address the muscle tone um, and the fascial adaptations to that archetype, for lack of mm-hmm. a better word, right? So a zone three breather really needs manipulation, um, and that's where that's where palpating different um, uh, mechanical rich sense uh, areas of the body come in handy, um, knowing where what I call these portals of vagal regulation are. So there are different areas of the body where we can palpate or position or breathe in order to impact our, our main parasympathetic nerve, which is the vagus nerve. Um, and so it's very, very helpful to adjust this chronic resting tone and then be able to use tools very skillfully to um, safely and over time familiarize, let relaxation feel safe to these bodies. Because you can imagine these bodies are definitely relaxation resistant. They're Mm -hmm. gonna be those relaxation induced anxiety um, type people. I know them well, they all come into my studio here. And um, I guess it's just my, I've just learned to work with them from from early stages of life because maybe I was raised by them. I've had my fair share of uh, experiencing panic attacks as well. It's part of my uh, my familial DNA. And so when you're doing, let's just say some myofascial release, self-myofascial release on the areas of say the levators, scalenes or whatnot up around the neck that are gonna be much more tonic for those zone three breathers, uh, is, is that what you're talking about where you're blending breath work with self-myofascial release, or are we going down into the diaphragm and pelvic floor where there isn't, it seems, as much stimulation? How, how what's the approach yes, that you typically take? It's, it's both and, because mm-hmm. you need to give, you need to give people the, the biofeedback of where their breathing is and where it isn't. And so that's one of the reasons why I use the cordless ball. You're probably, this is, I think you were referring to this earlier, but this is a yes. air-filled, pliable, grippy ball. And so this is placed on different aspects of the trunk, um, the abdomen, the low back, the waist. Um, and it gives you a, a, a soft tissue reflection pool. So you're able to feel the excursion of your, of, of the movement of your breath into the tool. And then the tool actually gives you something back. The tool helps escort your exhale out. And so there are lots of different exhale, uh, excuse me, lots of different exercises that we do um, that are, are peppered throughout um, body by breath to, to help people to facilitate those shifts for themselves. So the um, the book is 480 pages. Um, part one of the book is all the science and why and how this works. And part two are those four tools, the breathe, roll, move, and non-sleep deep rest, um, very detailed instructions. And then the book is full of, of QR codes. Also, if people are like, I'm not a book learner. Well, there's a QR code that'll zip you out. And then you can listen to me uh, direct you very specifically into a lot of the different experiences. Yeah, or you gotta love the QR also. codes. Yeah, I mean, I wish I wish we had been able to finish the app prior to the book publishing, but you know, there's so much work to be done. But that's coming out soon. Now, last year, I I believe it was last year, but I, it could be uh, more than that. But you you were doing some workshops with Tom Myers, and yes. and and so you and Tom have worked together. I mean, obviously, yes. Anatomy Trains, one of the the forefront uh, leaders in understanding interconnectivity 
tensegrity, if you will, fascial mm -hmm. trains and so on. Uh, but other people aside from Tom, well, I guess let's just talk about you and Tom. How did that go? Oh, it's great. Yeah, I'm, I'll be teaching with him again this summer. Tom and my bud, like, yeah, we were in, he, Tom came in here during the pandemic and we did an addendum to our Rolling Along the Anatomy Trains program. Um, you know, I had read Tom's book, God, I don't know, 20 something years ago, like when I was a mm -hmm. baby or something. Um, and so <laughs> I, I knew I was familiar with his model. I hadn't studied his model though. Um, I had, I, I was more of a, how can I say it? I, I think I built my own PhD program in the, just in the world of uh, meeting different anatomists, going to anatomy labs. Um, I'm happy I got to cross paths with Gil Headley. I did a number of labs with him, uh, nice. presented the Fascia Congress before I even knew, before I even knew Tom, somebody introduced me to him and I was like, oh my God, that's somehow, you know, I was like, oh, he's not going to like me. Um, but anyway, long story short, they invited me out to present at their summer institute, I think about seven years ago. And I taught, uh, six years ago, and I taught my body by breath immersion out there. And I stayed in Tom's farmhouse when I was there. And he came to every one of my classes when I taught that event. And the, you know, the Usually it doesn't do that. Usually they have a guest teacher. He'll come to the, for the first hour and a half. Very nice to meet you, you know, and then, and, but he was there the whole time. And he was, and after the end of day one, he goes, we need to do something together. And which is like, if, you know, the godfather of fascists says, all right, you need to do something together. You say yes. And then you get to work. And we figured out this wonderful um, blend of our work. And it's called rolling along the anatomy trains. This is an online program that's on my website, tunafitness.com. And he teaches his impeccable fascial anatomy. And then I teach guided movement check-ins and rollouts all along. I think we did five of the cardinal trains in this program. It's over eight hours and there's testing so you can get CEs and all of that. Um, and then we did an addendum during the pandemic and I'll be out there this summer and we'll be teaching. I don't think we figured out exactly what we're teaching, but it's going to be awesome. So this will be, um, yeah, this will be like our seventh year teaching together. Ah, that's wonderful. Now other names come in like Robert Schleip and, or Schleip. I can never pronounce Schleip. the doctor's name. It is Schleip. Schleip. Uh, and I, I've got, I think I've got his first DVD that is still in Germany, but, um, it's still in German, that is. But uh, there's also Bill Parisi now at Parisi Speed School, and Bill and the doctor work together. Of course, Bill is much more with the working with the athletes in regards to fascial research. What what other colleagues are in the the realm of fascial research that you would recommend some listeners checking out? Aside, uh, obviously, from yourself, Tom, and who I just mentioned. Yeah, well, I think a great place to go is if you're new to the work of fascia in general, um, we have a really great beginner um, uh, article on our website that's free um, about fascia and rolling. So you can always check that out. I recommend that people look at my friend David Lazondak's book, Fascia, What It Is and Why It Matters. I really think David has done the best job of making the history of fascia and fascia research read like a Rolling Stone magazine. I mean, it's so readable and you will learn so much 
Um, so I think that's a really great uh, piece of work for any trainer to get into. Then if you're like a super nerd, like I like love cell science. I used to want to be a microbiologist. So I really love the cell science. And so um, Carla Stecco really fulfills that need for me. Um, she has a book, which is the functional, I think it's called the Functional Atlas of Fascia. Um, not a cheap book. This is a major textbook, but the information in there is just, you know, it's every paragraph you learn 90 things. So she's incredible. Um, you can always just, you know, type in Carla Stecco into Google and also many of her papers will come up. Um, and she has a very uh, functional lab um, of research in Padua. So that's a really uh, another really great place to go. I mean, I have, there's so many resources. So um, get the book Fashion Function and Medical Applications if you want to see the medical uh, stuff. Because I I really like I really like the, the the pain stuff. Like I love athletes. Don't get me wrong, they're great, but I really love complicated things. Yeah, you're and a puzzle I, puzzle master. You yeah, like solving so puzzles. Most of the people that come into my space, into my classes, into my studio, they've they're either pre-surgery. Their post-surgery surgeries didn't address this or that, or they have a legacy of scar tissue that's really making their life difficult. Um, and so those are the kind of the researchers' work that I'm, you know, I like to like hang out and marinate in. There's, a, I mean, I could just keep naming researchers, but I'll, I'll stop. No, but that's good. Let's let's spend the last few minutes here talking about the effects of scars on the body because. Uh, I found in my own work. What about the diaphragm? Are we not going to just okay? We could. We did. We gave it some credit. We did just, not you, talk about the you, diaphragm. You gave okay, it a little teaser. People are going to be like, "Oh, I want to learn more about the diaphragm. We got to check out Jill Miller definitely online and find out." We get okay. Well, let's give it a little bit of both. Let's talk about scarring as it relates to the diaphragm. How about that? I've noticed that there have been many times where. I have palpated or had a client self-palpate a scar in a certain direction that creates a, a nice response and provides them with a greater degree of range of motion in an area that was restricted. Now, okay, take that and run with it. However you'd like to fold in the diaphragm with it, I love it. Okay, this is like, it's like an improvisational comedy assignment, like stack exactly. diaphragm plus palpation <laughs> plus scar. Uh, and motion. Let's see if I can get it all in. Go. Yes. Yeah. Well, going back to this conversation that we started with about sensory neurons and fascia, mm -hmm. when we have a scar, we have an interruption of, of so many different layers of the body. You got the interruption of your skin. You got an interruption of the fatty layer. You got this 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 blender of the superficial fascia all you know chewed up, depending on how deep the wound is. Um, Back up just a little bit. When we see a scar, what we're seeing is the very tip of the iceberg. Depending on what the wound or the injury or the surgery was, there's a scar path that is much more pervasive inside the body than what you're seeing on the surface of the skin. Tree roots. Not roots, gnarls. Because the root, the roots are organized. The scar is disorganized. It's gnarly. It's a clot. It's a, it's just willy nilly patchwork that allowed for blood vessels to 
to be able to regenerate there so that the area could heal. Uh, tree roots is, is way too elegant when we're talking. It's not a correct comparison with the scar. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, I do. It's, it's, it's gnarly, it's bulgy, it's, it's not pleasant. <laughs> it's K-N-O-T. Pleasant. Very good. Well said, Rocky. I love it. <laughs> it's not pleasant. Yes. So um, the challenge then is you have multi-directional vectors that the scar has um, disrupted in the flow of that tissue. The flow of that tissue isn't just the, the strata of the skin, the fat, the, the retinacular cutis, the superficial fascia, the more retinacular cutis and the fat, deep fascia, muscle, more fascia, uh, more muscle, down to periosteum or whatever. It's also disrupted the fluid flow in that entire area and creates dams and uh, the fluid has to bypass and swim around. Some still gets through, uh, but we have often a lot of inflammation around a scar and that is that damming of fluids in and around the scar. Um, and so, and all up in there, we have many different sensory neurons. Um, and depending on the conduction of motion and the conduction of fluids, some of those sensory neurons are gonna be extremely sensitized to the poor circulation in that area. Um, for many people, when you touch a scar lightly, it like stings or it's numb. Both of those are a sensory response. That stinging feeling is that you're, you, you've got inflammatory cytokines still just harbored in there. You also have just the basic cell turnover debris. So we have, for lack of a better word, the poo and pee of cell turnover that's not easily getting washed away because of the disruption that the scar the scar tissue, the scar fluid path has created. So when I palpate, when you push into, that immediately has uh, changes some of the sensory neuron feedback, but also if I touch, and then if I move it just a little bit this way or move it little, just a little bit that way, um, it can create uh, an escape route for some of these fluids. It can also suddenly um, stimulate the nerves in a different direction, and they just start to give different feedback altogether. So there, there's just so many different things that are happening in a scar. But my advice to people who live with um, gnarly scars is to not let them go fallow, um, but to make sure that you do do manipulations of both the scar and what you think is the scar path. If you've had a surgery, you may be able to get a very clear indication of what that scar path was. If it was um, an accident, a fall, a break, or you know uh, that didn't necessarily have uh, you know any kind of stitches or surgery, uh, you may you'll have to make your best guesses. Yeah. Okay. All right. Bring the diaphragm home now. So with the diet, thank you. Where the diaphragm will come in is we can use breathing to adjust our autonomic tone, um, especially when we're doing things that are unsavory or painful. Um, one of the, you know, when things are unsavory or painful, we're going to be in a more aroused state. We're going to be more on an alarm um, uh, vigilant state, but deep, slow breathing, especially uh, rhythmic breathing that is slower than what your normal rate is and especially breathing that emphasizes exhalation, that typically can adjust our, our whole body's autonomic tone 
and that can soften unknown tensions and allow you for a more therapeutic involvement when you're dealing with your scars or any other part of your body that feels, um, you know, painful. So in regards to a cadence rhythm of breathing, two second inhalation, no, what, four second name, exhalation? You can name any time threshold as long yeah. as it's different from how you're normally breathing. Okay, disrupt the pattern. Disrupt the pattern. Um, typically, slower. You know, it's in there. There, yeah. I there that. There's a whole other, you know, breath science question that we could get into. But I got to go get my kids to school, and so and you probably don't. But I have to pick my kids up. But <laughs> just know that changing your breath rhythm and sustaining that breath change for two to five minutes is gonna have profound effect on your brain, on your body, on just the central tone uh, that, your, that your body is used to. So change your breath, not fast-paced breathing, fast-paced breathing does a whole other thing, but slow-paced breathing, slower than normal, make it bigger than normal and be consistent with it. That will make a shift. Beautiful, we'll bring you back on next spring. So when it will give you plenty of time to to talk about your summer workshop with Tom and all that. And I promise plenty of time to talk more about the diaphragm, but Jill, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much. I'll make sure that people get all the information, how to follow you in the descriptions below the podcast. You've been a gem. I'm so glad we reconnected. Go get your kids. My gosh, you don't want to have anybody start uh, neck breathing, waiting for mama to arrive. Oh gosh, no. Thank you so much, Rocky. I appreciate you. You got it. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Zealous Podcast. Thank you, Jill, for coming on. If you want information on how to get any of her books, check the description below this podcast, as well as ways to sign up for her workshops and courses with Tom Myers or just the ones that she teaches on her own. Until next week, be sure to tell a couple friends about Zealous. The fandom is growing like you would not believe, like at least one person a week. We can make that two, maybe, with your help. Anyway, have a great week. We'll see you next time.